Welcome to Live Talk, a weekly radio talk style show exclusively produced by Pituitary World News. Hello, everyone. This is Dr. Lewis Blevins of Pituitary World News. Welcome to Live Talk. I'm joined today by my colleague and uh, co-founder, Jorge Fascinetti. Good evening, Jorge. How are you doing Hello. today? Hello. Hi, everybody. Good to be here. So it's a, it's a really great opportunity for us today with uh, uh, Live Talk to have a special guest speaker, Dr. Manish Agi, who's professor of neurological surgery at UCSF and uh, one of the principal uh, neurological surgeons who performs pituitary surgery at our institution. Manish, welcome. Thank you. It's a pleasure being with both of you this afternoon. Yeah, we're great to have you here. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time. Now, this is the second time you've been a guest on the program. Jorge tells me that our first, you were our inaugural guest and that the first podcast has uh, received a lot of attention since that time. So we're happy to have you back. I know people like to hear what you have to say. It's a pleasure being back and um, also an honor to have done the first podcast with you both. Well, I appreciate you joining us. And uh, and I thought we would talk today about pituitary surgery. Uh, so many patients have a lot of anxiety when they learn they have a pituitary tumor, but even more so when they learn that they have to have an operation uh, for such a tumor. And um, we haven't done anything like this before on Pituitary World News, but I wanted to talk about or try to emulate or have you explain to us, what do you tell a patient when you're telling them you have this lesion, you need an operation? How do you how do you educate them so that they can uh, not only understand, but also have a lessening of their anxiety about the upcoming surgery? Uh, it's a great question. So I like to think about it as, um, and I think intuitively this fits with how patients think, but three sort of temporal phases or components, the pre-op, the intra-op, which includes the surgery and the hospital stay, and then the post-op, which is the time at home recovering. Um, and the conversations generally flow in that order. So I'll start out by discussing the pre-op. So once we've reached um, uh, an agreement that the patient has heard the options of surgery versus no surgery and prefers to pursue surgery, um, we'll then have a conversation about timing. Um, some pituitary tumors, when they're causing mass effect or compressive symptoms on the visual structures can be more urgent, and we'll try to get those patients in for surgery right away. Um, we're fortunate to have um, the ability to schedule patients without much delay at all. Um, other times, though, patients will have more mild symptoms, maybe a, a mild endocrinopathy or some mild headaches, um, and they'll have the flexibility of um, working with their schedule um, that may involve, you know, working at picking a surgery date when they have family support at home or when they're on holiday from work um, or these days when people have met their deductible for their insurance that may determine their timing. And, and so once we've sort of gone over some of those things, we'll talk about the requirements before surgery. There's some administrative requirements. Patients are getting COVID tested even now before surgery. We learned during the pandemic that Procedures done through the nose, like pituitary surgery, are um, particularly prone to um, spreading aerosolized droplets, so important to confirm that patients um, are COVID negative before having their surgery. And then some patients will get a repeat MRI um, for surgical planning, which is pretty easy for us to schedule. And, um, and then depending on the specific case, they they may see an ear, nose, and throat doctor before the procedure if they're if we have a ear, nose, and throat doctor helping with the surgery. And then they'll have a consult with the anesthesiologist to hear about the anesthetic part of the procedure, um, which is usually a phone call, so they don't have to leave their home for that. Um, so those are some of the discussions that we'll have uh, prior to surgery. So one of the things that I've been really grateful for is that you're very quick to see patients and to get them into the uh, OR when necessary. But I think you made a good point that we need to determine urgency. Some people, for example, have vacations planned or trips to Europe or wherever. I always tell them not to put those aspects of their life on, on hold unless they have visual field deficits, as you 
had indicated would be a reason to proceed more swiftly. Um, you you do endoscopic pituitary surgery, and mm -hmm. a lot of people think we don't do endoscopic surgery at UCSF, but we do a lot of it, uh, and that's a procedure. You, do. you also can do the endonasal approach. I think that mm -hmm. you're one of the few surgeons in the country who can choose, pick and choose which operation to do depending on the needs for the patient. I just want our audience to understand that you do endoscopic surgery as well um, and have a lot of experience of that. So can you tell us a little bit about um, the indications for a surgical procedure for a patient with a pituitary tumor? Yeah, so um, as mentioned earlier, uh, sometimes it can be because the tumor is causing mass effect. So the structures near the pituitary gland that can be compressed and cause mass effect include the vision nerves from a pituitary tumor, the normal gland, which can cause a low hormonal state, and then the dura or the covering of the pituitary gland, if it's under pressure, can sometimes cause headaches. The brain itself doesn't feel pain, but the dura is innervated and can sometimes be a source of headaches. Um, we've had a number of um, discussions about the topic of headaches. So I'll leave that for a different day, other than to say that that is sometimes an indication for surgery. And then in other cases, patients can have tumors that are making an excess amount of hormones, and the tumor in that case needs to come out. Uh, to normalize hormonal function and achieve what we call biochemical remission. And in regards to the different types of surgical procedures, if you could just briefly run that down uh, so patients can understand. So pituitary tumors in the modern era, you know, well over 90% of the time, the initial surgical procedure will be done through the nose. And so we call that transphenoidal because the sphenoid sinus is the gateway that brings us from the nose to the pituitary gland. Um, and transphenoidal surgery will, is almost, is essentially the workhorse procedure for getting access to pituitary tumors. Um, there's, you can subdivide transphenoidal surgeries depending on what light source you're using to illuminate your surgical field, if it's an endoscope or a microscope. And so endo means the light is internal and the light source is brought inside the nose with a handheld device that's, um, that the surgeon can hold in their hand to provide light. And then microscope is uh, going to provide the light outside the nose um, and a surgical microscope provides um, uh, robust illumination, but the light source is now coming outside the nose while the surgeon's hands work in the nose. Now, a very small percentage of pituitary tumors are going to require either at diagnosis or as part of a second stage procedure, a craniotomy. And so that's another term for that would be an open approach where we're essentially, you know, rather than the minimally invasive exposure we get through the nose, we're now going through the top uh, or the side of the skull, removing a piece of the skull temporarily and retracting the frontal or temporal lobes of the brain um, to gain access to the pituitary gland. Um, and we'll do that for access to pituitary tumors only really a handful of times a year. And it's gone down over the years as the endoscope has become more and more facile at getting access to these tumors. So when I first started, we would maybe do 10 to 15 craniotomies for pituitary tumors per year. And now it's down to more like five to eight. So it's becoming less needed overall, but it's it's still an available option for some cases. Yeah, that approach used to be very common early in my career as well. And, uh, and I think with better techniques, it's, it's you know, it's I saw a patient of yours recently. It's absolutely incredible how much tumor was actually up in the brain and you were able to get it out through the nose. Uh, and then the upper reaches fell down so the patient will require repeat operation through the nose. But you saved that patient a craniotomy. Years ago, it would have been a definite craniotomy after a, a limited transphenoidal surgical procedure. So I really appreciate the advances in neurosurgical care and techniques. What about pre-medications? Do you have patients that you pre-medicate with vasoconstrictors or antibiotics? What do you tell patients regarding that matter? So um, we give a dose of antibiotic in the operating room, but we don't have them take it at home. Um, we um, obviously don't want 
to create resistant flora. So we just give a single dose in the operating room to sort of, as best as we can, sterilize the nose. But you have to understand when we, it's interesting, like when we, in the operating room, we do what's called a debrief at the end of the procedure, uh, any procedure. And one of the terms, and basically that's just a way of, it's like a safety check, like you would on an airplane with a pilot and co-pilot. And so as the surgeon, the procedure is now done, I go through a checklist of all the items. And so one of the things we say is, was the wound sterile? Uh, there's different categories. There's sterile, clean, contaminated, which means mostly clean, but not perfectly sterile. And then there's contaminated if you're operating on an infection. And so transphenoidal surgery is categorized as clean contaminated. It's not, whereas a craniotomy is considered sterile. Um, and so what that means is that no matter what we do, um, we can't make anybody's nose completely sterile because our nose communicates with the outside world. But a single dose of antibiotics, it, it's felt that it at least does a little bit to, if anybody has an excessive amount of flora in their nose, it at least will reduce it relatively quickly so that by the time you're into the pituitary, you're not you know, transmitting organisms. But as you can attest to, I've had two cases of meningitis in 14 years. So, and that's you know, after thousands of journeys through the nose into the pituitary. So it's a pretty rare um, situation to get infected. So that's the antibiotic part of it. We do give um, a stress dose steroid for most patients with pituitary tumors, other than cases of Cushing's where they're making too many steroids because we want to guard against um, high patients who might be mildly hypoadrenal having a, a steroid crisis from the stress of the surgery. Surgery itself is not stressful. Certainly pituitary surgery is not as stressful as other surgeries, but it's really any surgery you have, the anesthetic can put some stress on your body. And so if you have a low hormonal state, we want to give them some steroids before the surgery to guard against blood pressure drops and things that could happen if they're unable to mount a response. So uh, I have a quick question for you. <laughs> Since I um, had you know pituitary surgery, as you know, in 2010, I often wondered what happens in the operating room. You know, I've seen the 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 films from uh, inside. You know, when you when you're filming what happens within the endoscope or the or the um, the microscope, uh, but never you know understand what's going on after you fall asleep. And in my case, the only thing I can remember is a very funny anesthesiologist. I can't remember the joke he told, but I remember everybody laughing. And then it was lights out until you know recuperating room. So it may be interesting for patients to hear what happens once you know the patient gets wheeled in uh the sort of procedures that you take and processes yeah that's a great question so i have a couple of photos if i could share with you yeah yeah and i will and i will put it on the uh site and the article so people can see the the photo the the, the graphic but, um, uh, but basically when we start the procedure the patient um, is wheeled in. They are um, uh, put to sleep, you know, by the anesthesia doctors uh, with under anesthesia. So they're given some sedation, and uh, they hold a breathing mask over their face, and then they gradually doze off to sleep. That process takes about thirty minutes. So, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of from a family perspective, when I tell families, you know, what to expect in terms of surgical time, they. Um, will, uh, you know, we don't always account for those things. So it's important to understand that there's a lot that goes on that's not surgery from the moment the patient enters the operating room till they uh, leave the operating room. So 30 minutes and then they're asleep. When they go to sleep, their head is um, at the near where all the anesthesia equipment is. But we don't like to perform surgery through the nose with their head sort of crowded by all that equipment. And sure. so we, we use beds that can turn 180 degrees um, without having to move the bed. It's essentially a swivel bed. And so as soon as they say the patient's asleep, we spin the bed 180 degrees. So now the head, the feet are by the anesthesiologist and the head is essentially away from the anesthesiologist. And that allows me to bring in all my equipment near the head because that's where I'm working. Sure. And um, at that point, the first thing I'll do is um, 
fix the head so it's not going to move while I'm drilling or working. And so I put little screws in the head. These don't leave any marks. They're just, you know, devices that keep the head from moving. And then um, at that point, the operation begins. Um, and so if it's, but, you know, we keep in mind, we've got a lot of equipment. So for an endoscope, we'll have um, a monitor on each side of the patient's head, both at 45 degrees that are showing me in uh, 4,000 pixels, sort of high resolution, the inside of the nose. And I see the monitor that's facing me, my colleague who's operating it from ear, nose and throat team will see the monitor facing him. We work across from each other or next to each other. And then um, together we'll perform for the first 30 minutes the work in the sinus to get to the pituitary gland. Then about an hour and a half of um, surgery uh, to remove the tumor. And then we close everything up, put everything back the way it was. We don't leave any packing in the nose. There's no, you know, no blood. There's no cuts that are made mm -hmm. on the patient's face. And then we take the patient out of those pins. And, um, and then we turn the bed back 180 degrees and the uh, breathing tube is removed. And then they're brought to a regular recovery room, not the ICU, just a regular room where they're allowed to, you know, awaken for another hour and a half before they're brought to a room where they're observed overnight. And so on that um, image I was sharing with you, I actually had, you know, in the computer, it tells us what time the patient, the, the times of everything. And so I showed a case from last week of a patient with a four and a half centimeter tumor that was completely removed. We had an MRI afterwards. And the, the computer says uh, patient in the operating room, meaning wheeled into the operating room, 11.27 a.m., um, anesthesia ready, which means now they're starting to sleep 1157. So for the first 30 minutes, they were just getting the patient comfortable on the bed. Mm -hmm. um, procedure start, which means my work is starting 1231, a little afternoon. So that's a full hour after the patient got in the room, but that's when my role starts. Procedure end 1426. So we went for a four and a half centimeter tumor. My part from the moment I you know, began working on the nose till the moment the procedure was done was two hours, uh, actually not even two hours, an hour and 57 minutes for a four and a half centimeter tumor. And then the patient left the operating room at 2.52 in the afternoon, having oh. been wheeled in at 11.27 in the morning. And so um, that was really an indication of how efficient this process is. And my experience is you know, not just with brain surgery, but the shorter your anesthetic time, the quicker your recovery is, you know, yeah, of anesthesia course. accumulates in our lipid tissues. And if you're under anesthesia for eight hours, every, these days, we all have a little bit of body mass that's all sitting in our fatty cells. And it may take the rest of the day to get that out of our system. But if you're only under anesthesia for two hours, like that patient, you're going to um, likely, and as was the case with this patient, very lucid having a full conversation at 4 p.m., um, which is really what we like to see. Yeah, yeah, that's wonderful. Well-oiled machine. And that's how patient, you know, multiple patients can have surgery in one day. And, you know, when you have a busy um, practice, as we do at UCSF, um, efficiency is, is key. Um, and, sure. and the operating room is one of the most um, limiting resources we have. You only have one surgeon, you have one operating room. Um, but the fact that we're doing this hundreds of times a year, um, much like a, you know, any sort of efficient procedure, the airline, a automobile, auto race car driver in the Indy 500, we have it well tuned. And, and similarly, when the patient leaves the room, the room gets clean for the next patient. And that process is like a pit crew, like they're eight people, they each have their job, they're cleaning one corner of the room and yeah. getting the room sterilized and clean for the next patient. Our instruments, the moment they're done, I tell the nurse, you know, hand that off because it's got to get autoclaved for the next case. So I don't, I don't want it sitting on the table because they think I might need it again. So communication is key. Yeah. 
So a number of related uh, questions, if I may. Um, I've been in the OR, you know, multitude of times throughout my career, not only as a medical student, but also as faculty. I've actually been in the OR with you before, but I've had patients ask me this and I don't know how to answer the question. Maybe you do as patients say, how will they know I'm asleep and ready to do the operation? So <laughs> that is a if you're bolting a frame to someone's head to keep it still, you'll know then if they're not asleep. But uh, how does the anesthesiologist gauge that it's, it's, you're ready to perform this operation? So there's a couple of ways. Um, so for pituitary surgery, patients are fully muscle relaxed or paralyzed. When we operate on the portions of the brain where we want to see motor movement or do motor mapping, we don't do that. But for pituitary surgery, they are paralyzed. And so they have an electrical um, stimulator uh, near the wrist um, and they can give twitches or they can give stimulation and look for twitches in the hand and the fingers to confirm the paralysis. Um, and that's very reliable as an indicator of deep anesthetic. Um, and similarly, when they lighten the patient, um, they need an advance warning. So we tell them we're 30 minutes out they lighten the anesthetic and they look for the twitches coming back. Um, and that tells them that they're ready to be awake. So that's the most common way we, we notice it. The other thing that we'll notice is, um, and of course, if, if I put pins in the head and the patient yells, ouch, that's a bad sign. But the reality is most people are gonna be pretty deeply anesthetized. They're, they're no longer taking their own breaths. That's another metric, you know, if, if the machine is showing no you know, no breathing on their own, then the breathing tube needs to go in. Um, and then the other thing we look for is if I place those pins on the head and the blood pressure rises, that means they're not deep enough and they're, they're not deeply anesthetized enough because at some level they're feeling some pain from my pain, from my pins. That's what's causing the blood pressure rise. So we, we look for all of those things. Patients are often concerned about modesty as well. And, you know, that includes not only how many people can be in the room, but are they going to be naked? How do they get draped, et cetera? I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. That's a great question. And, you know, fortunately, because we're operating um, in the nose, um, we keep the rest of the body covered. Um, in fact, you know, we don't want patients to get cold during surgery. So um, their body temperature is monitored and so they're not only covered with their hospital gown, which is fairly sparse, but a warm blanket. We have a blanket warmer in the room. In fact, we'll often see the, the nurses walking around with a fresh blanket from the blanket warmer draped over their shoulders. Um, and the only part of their body that we do sometimes expose is for some of the bigger tumors, we'll take a tiny piece of fat to plug up the hole where the tumor was just to uh, close up dead space. And that fat slowly absorbs. And that fat is taken through a tiny incision about um, an inch wide, just above the undergarment line. And so I will expose just a tiny sliver of that skin, which is um, uh, every, but everywhere else they're covered with a warm blanket or hospital gown. Um, but just that tiny little sliver, um, just to the right of the belly button, that's what we expose. And we expose that on all the cases, even if we don't end up taking the fat, just so we have the option and that's on the standard consent. But we try to avoid the fat for the smaller tumors and we just use it for select cases. I wonder if you would comment briefly on the use of a lumbar drain. We used to see a lot of people having lumbar drains after surgery in the early parts of my career, but it's not as common now. Yeah, I've, I've, moved, to, I've moved away from it a lot. I use it on a certain tumor type, which is the meningioma, not the pituitary adenoma because meningioma, you're really doing the operation in the brain or spinal fluid above the pituitary gland. And so for that, you know, you really are encountering spinal fluid and having a drain in for two days afterwards just helps your surgical site heal and reduces the risk of meningitis. But for a pituitary adenoma or a Rathke's clepsis, it's been a long time since I've used the lumbar drain. Um, if there is a little bit of leakage, we can seal it off and the drain isn't really going to help with that sealing because the sealant works pretty well even without the drain. So if I excluded meningiomas, I would say, you know, I'm using maybe one lumbar drain a year. Um, so it's not that common. Well, let's take just about a minute or so of a break here, and uh, then we'll come back with Dr. Manish Aghi and talk about the postoperative phase of pituitary surgery. 
You are listening to Live Talk. We'll be right back. Anyway, welcome back. And uh, Manish, let's talk a bit about the uh, post-operative phase of pituitary surgery uh, from recovery room to long-term follow-up. So tell us what goes on in the recovery room and why patients stop there before they go to the regular room on most occasions. So the, the recovery room is also called, called the PACU or post-anesthesia care unit. Um, and it the level of care is comparable to ICU care because if somebody has just recently been extubated in the operating room, um, they need to be observed by a nurse with a, in a one-to-one ratio, um, and uh, at least until they're more awake. And that takes about an hour to 90 minutes. And so the PACU is a way of having the patient experience that while not being in the operating room and allowing the operating room to be then prepared for the next patient. Um, the UCSF PACU has around 42 beds. And it's, you know, all patients who've had all sorts of surgeries, including pituitary surgery. Um, in the PACU, patients will be groggy. They may have a little bit of nausea. One of the things we do in the operating room to reduce post-operative nausea is we suction out any blood from the back of the throat before they are extubated, because that can be a, a trigger that can trigger some nausea. So, if, you know, pituitary surgery, we don't lose that much blood. It's like a few drops, really. But if any of that just gets lodged in the back of the throat, it almost sort of tickles that area and can cause a reflexive feeling of nausea. And so we want to minimize that. But even the anesthetic can cause a little bit of nausea. But that experience will usually clear by an hour, hour and a half. And then the, that during that time, the PACU is working on getting the patient a bed assignment. Many of our pituitary patients go to our new unit on the 15th floor, which is a bunch of private rooms with spectacular views of the city. Mm-hmm. Um, it's been very popular with the patients. And so um, when those rooms are available, um, the patient is then transported um, to begin you know, that part of their recovery, which is the inpatient overnight stay. And so I tell patients to be prepared for what is usually a one night stay in the hospital, but we don't, you know, we don't kick anyone out prematurely. We, but it, you know, it's just that many patients are ready to go home the next day. And so obviously that's something patients need to plan for in terms of getting a ride from the hospital. Visiting hours have been used to be more broad, but during the pandemic have been or were restricted and are now loosening up again and are now 10 a.m. to 8 p.m. So most of our patients can be seen by their family the night of surgery, the night after they've recovered, and then the next morning at 10 a.m. We try to get patients out shortly after noon once their morning blood work has come back, their sodium looks good, their urine is looking good. Sometimes we'll send you a message, Lewis, to uh, double check that they're cleared to go home and if they are, then they'll be going home that afternoon. But as I said, some patients need an extra day either for a little more monitoring or perhaps just to be a little more comfortable. The patient I mentioned who had the two-hour procedure just didn't have a ride till Sunday morning. So he stayed till Sunday morning coming out of surgery Friday at 2 p.m. But most of them are able to go home the next day. What's the current policy on... Um patients having a family member spend the night in the hospital? So um, as I said, the hours on default are 10 a.m. to 8 p.m. It's two visitors per patient. They can change who the visitors are from one day to the next. In terms of overnight stays, it requires approval from a specific nursing committee. And we do need to document um, you know, the need. And the most common scenario is older patients who may get a little confused in the middle of the night and 
you know, could be a fall risk if they were to get up and try to go to the bathroom. Um, and the hospital has been understanding in those scenarios. It's a little bit harder with a young, healthy person um, to get uh, approval for family staying. Although sometimes we've gotten the approval when the patient is really young and the, I operate mostly on adults, but you can, I recently had an 18 year old where they approved parental stay um, uh, overnight in that case. So it, it's just on a case by case basis. So in the vein of education, let's talk a little bit about some of the potential immediate post-operative complications just so people can hear it. And uh, whether they're having surgery with us or someone across the country, they can know when they might want to call their physician before that first follow-up period. Yeah. So I tell patients that um, in some ways we're fortunate that there's not many complications. The risk profile of pituitary surgery has become very low. Those complications that do occur tend to line up where the most common ones are also the most treatable and and potentially um, least long-term damaging. And so the most common one we talk about is um, disturbances in their electrolytes, either due to too much vasopressin production by the posterior lobe of the gland or too little production of of vasopressin. And so that hormone controls water reabsorption at the kidneys. And if that gets out of whack, the body's sodium can go a little high or a little low. Um, and so we do on all the patients, the, the morning after surgery, check a sodium. We'll also measure their urine output in a jug before they go home. And if those metrics are tracking normally, then, you know, they don't, and they don't appear to be experiencing any of that, we'll typically send them home. If they're experiencing any borderline issues, we may still send them home, but give them a, a requisition slip to get their sodium checked at home a day or two later, just to make sure they don't have a delayed alteration. Some patients who experience too much urine output will get a, a, what we call DDAVP or um, medication to correct that. And we, in many cases, that's gonna be temporary, but if they need it at least for a dose or two, to help correct the problem, we can do that either before they go home or in some cases after they go home, we can prescribe it remotely. Um, and these things in total represent about 5% of our patient population where we're sort of dealing with these issues, um, but with a busy practice that does come up um, uh, in, you know, qu quite often throughout the year. Um, now, just to remind people that if your sodium is low, the symptom you're going to have is a headache and sometimes confusion or slurred speech or whatever, but the most common early symptom are signs of headache. So typically people are doing better after surgery than three to five days afterwards, they have the worst headache of their life. And that's when we want them to call us to, so we can test them for the low sodium. And then with the diabetes insipidus, if they start peeing a lot and becoming thirsty, we want to hear about that as well. That's absolutely right. And then Another complication we'll sometimes see is what's called epistaxis or bleeding from the nose. Um, and it uh, happens a handful of times a year. Uh, sometimes it happens the next day in the hospital. Sometimes it happens when the patient goes home. If it's a mild thing, we'll, we'll usually tell them to hold a, a, a Kleenex or a gauze or whatever is available at the base of the nose. And usually a little pressure like that'll be enough to stop it most of the time. Um, I'll also tell patients to be very careful not to you know, lift anything heavy or bend their head below their waist in the first few weeks of the, of the uh, recovery because that can precipitate a bloody nose. We don't want to see that happen. Mm -hmm. um, in extreme cases, if it's an arterial nosebleed, they can need to go back to the hospital and get um, something uh, squirted into the nose to stop the bleeding or packed into the nose. I would say that happens about once every three years, but it's, um, it is something we'll sometimes see, but it is fixable. And as long as they're told what to look out for, most patients do fine with that too. Yeah, I remember the, uh, the instructions post-op from UCSF. It was great, you know, the list of what things to look for. The only thing that was very funny to me was when, uh, I think it was Dr. Kuhnwer that said, and don't sneeze. <laughs> And if you sneeze, do it with your mouth open. So you're immediately, you know what happens when somebody says, don't sneeze. You just start thinking about it. 
<laughs> you want to yeah. sneeze. So I sneezing and sneezing and sniffing are the big nose. So Manish, why don't nose. you tell us why? So yeah, yeah. So the the surgical site in the back of the nose is, you know, it's robust, but like any surgical site or scab or scar, if you disrupt it or traumatize it, it can break and and you know, and then you get some blood, yeah. and so. Um, the nose is different than your arm or leg in that it the trauma to your nose is the things we do every day that we don't think about in sniffing or sneezing, although they're normal biologic functions, they are traumatic to the, to the area in the back of the nose. Um, when you sneeze, opening your mouth is a pop-off valve that minimizes the pressure that goes back into your nose. Um, it essentially opens up your, your station tube and now that sort of rush of air has a different valve to go out. Um, we understand that patients can't avoid sneezing, and so we're not trying to no. be uh, punitive, but yeah. uh, just some advice. And then, um, but fortunately, most people are able to breathe through their nose, and so the use of the mouth is really only when you sneeze, but it shouldn't be part of the day-to-day, -day, um, you know, going about your routine and breathing and normal. Yeah, yeah of course. <laughs> Yeah, it probably doesn't really matter a lot except in those people who had a CSF leak at surgery because there you have the risk of pneumocephalus, um, which is air that gets into the spinal fluid and can compress brain tissue and cause neurological problems. Mm -hmm. um, I can't remember the last time I saw a significant case of epistaxis at our institution. We used to see a lot early in the early years, but techniques are better and we don't see as much nowadays. Um, and uh, you'd mentioned two cases of meningitis. That's another risk of the CSF leak at surgery. And one of the other things that I think of that if we can direct sneezes through the mouth, that's going to probably decrease the likelihood of that as well. Mm -hmm. um, what about um, heavy lifting, straining, scuba diving, and things like that? So I tell them to avoid lifting. And, and I, I pick this analogy and I... I uh, because it's the most cautious, but really anything heavier than a gallon of milk. Um, but the other way I describe it is, you know, you also have to account for how you're lifting it. So if you're picking it up off the kitchen counter and lifting it a foot so that it, you can put it on the shelf in your fridge, that's a pretty minor strain. If you're bending over and picking it up off the ground, that's much more of a strain. And so it, I think I, you know, overall, we trust patients to use their judgment. Um, I think these conversations become more significant in with patients who live alone, because we have to be more precise sometimes with, you know, when somebody's really, you know, having to take care of themselves, which is totally doable, but we want to give th those folks a little more detail versus patients who have a, a family member or a spouse caring for them at home. They may have... Um, more of an ability to control their day-to-day -day exertion than somebody who's living alone. So we account for the instructions in many ways are patient-specific. You mentioned scuba diving. So that's in some ways the biggest stressor just in terms of the pressure gradients that the nose can experience. And obviously scuba divers are masked, et cetera. But I really tell people to, to steer clear of that for about six months after surgery. Um, you know, we don't have a lot of evidence. Our population of transphenoidal scuba divers is, is small, but um, we figure just err on the side of caution there because just thinking about the, the physics and biology of it, it's a little worrisome. You're in a you know non-sterile, deep, highly pressurized pool of water. It just seems you know better to be safe. I agree. So my experience, having done this for 30 plus years and following, a, a, you know, legions of patients through their pituitary surgery is that usually by six weeks out, most people are feeling pretty good. Uh, and the, sometimes the sinus cavity tissues take probably a good four months to get back to normal. Why don't you talk to us about the recovery from the surgical aspects? And then we'll talk a little bit about the recommended follow-up. So we we choose six weeks as the sort of default initial post-op visit, and then we tailor it to specific patients. But for most people, that works pretty nicely because, you know, most people are um, going to feel fully recovered at six weeks. And, and that allows them to 
be able to process the information. So you can now have a very detailed conversation with them about how their surgery went, what their pathology showed, what, how their MRI looks, and um, and you have an attentive audience that is comfortable, not in any pain. If you have a conversation like that at one week or two weeks, um, they'll probably understand it all and appreciate it all, but they may also feel a little congested or uncomfortable. And so six weeks really captures most people's recovery pretty nicely. And people will generally just break it up into two-week blocks. What I find that I hear is the first two weeks, it's almost like you've got a lingering benefit of the anesthesia from the hospital, but they're feeling great. And then maybe weeks three and four, they're like, ah, feeling a little run down, maybe a little congested. And then they rebound for weeks five and six, and then they're ready for their post-op visit. So that first post-operative visit usually involves MRI, uh, review of pituitary functions uh, to determine whether there's any biochemical evidence for pituitary hormone excess still for those that had a secreting tumor and to see if there's any hypopituitarism for those, all those that had surgery. A review of the pathology and... Um, at that time, we usually decide whether someone needs additional treatment uh, or whether they're rendered disease-free and just need long-term follow-up. Uh, what are the things, and I know that you're, I do all of the post-operative follow-up for Dr. Kunwar, but you see all of your own patients post-operatively about the same time that I do, and we always talk about those cases. What are some of the things that you're looking for at the time? So we take a look at the MRI and we we look to make sure there's no residual tumor. Um, and sometimes it's very clear that there's not. Um, sometimes the MRI may be vague because there may be some residual blood from the surgery. And we tell the patient we think there's no residual tumor, but we wanna get another MRI in six months just to be sure. But you know we're 90, 95% sure. Um, there is some debate in the literature of the optimal timing of the first MRI. And there's actually some articles that argue that they. The, the MRI can't really be interpreted until six months. But I think it's, it's a really a disservice to a patient who's undergone, who's sort of put their trust in you to undergo an operation and now having to wait six months to hear the result of that. I also think an early or an early-ish post-op MRI is helpful because it you, you still have a fresh memory of the operation so you can interpret the scan. And we actually will talk to the radiologists and tell them what we saw at surgery, which helps them put the scan into perspective and give a better report. So it's very important to do the, the, all this stuff in a multidisciplinary team-based fashion. Um, in addition, at the first visit at six weeks, I, I want to see how the patient's doing. So um, do they feel congested? How's their smell? That's probably the, you know, one of the first questions I'll ask. Are you smelling okay? Are you tasting food okay? sense of taste is so intimately linked to smell. If a patient's congested, they may not um, be able to smell very clearly. Um, and uh, and that's, uh, that's something that, uh, that we monitor very closely. Um, and then, you know, we just ask about uh, they've had any drainage of fluid from their nose. We go through a full battery of questions um, and then we want to get a sense of their energy. Are they ready to return to work? Um, so we give them a, uh, a leave of, uh, from work type note before surgery. And we want and you know, that's usually expired by the six week visit. And so we want to make sure that they don't need an extended leave. There are some occupations where, although the recovery is pretty full, um, you know, it may take longer than six weeks to return to work. Um, some examples that come to mind. Um, a police officer that I did surgery on who had a very, you know, out on the street patrolling a, um, a, an area where he was in sort of physical demand a lot, needed a few more weeks than six, which was totally understandable. Um, and then also a chef where your sense of smell needs to be finely tuned. Sometimes that sense, even if you're fully energetic, you're on your computer all day, sometimes it may take eight weeks or 10 weeks till you can, you know, cook the way you're used to as a chef. So there's, there's so much about pituitary surgery that has to be tailored to the patient, sure. not just in terms of the surgery, but the recovery. 
Yeah, we've had patients who are package handlers, for example, work for UPS or FedEx mm -hmm. or whatever. They they can't do the heavy lifting yet, so we can mm -hmm. keep them off usually a little longer. Um, and you're right, it does depend on occupation and, and also how well a patient's doing. It's interesting, though. I've, I've had people go back to work within a week. Uh, yes. I remember years ago, we operated on a physician, and he had surgery on a Tuesday and was back in the hospital rounding on patients the following Monday. A, a real estate agent who was doing DocuSign selling a house in the hospital the morning after surgery. So <laughs> most people can do fine. I always tell people, let your body be your guide. Go back to work when you financially need to, as long as you can do it. If you want to try to go back in a week or two, try to go back for half days or at least let your supervisor know that you might not, you know, you're going to try, but you might not be able to come back yet and, uh, and do it. We have a lot of people, though, who want to burn their whole six weeks of, of, uh, of sick time. And I don't recommend that usually. I think our job is to keep people healthy and keep them productive in society. And people should go back to work as soon as they can, usually. I don't want anybody to not feel comfortable going back to work, but I usually encourage people to get back as soon as they can. Yeah, we... Yeah, I, I, sorry, I was going to say I remember a very, very easy recovery for me, and I think at two weeks, I was, uh, I had my research company at the time, so I was still doing uh, uh, reports and writing, uh, but really take it easy, you know, but it was very, very uh, um, an easy recovery. Yeah, I agree. And, and, and I certainly, you know, when I, when I talk to patients, I give them both extremes. And so they're prepared for every possibility. But I agree, a large number of folks are um, coming back within a week or two. And what I noticed, particularly during COVID, when everything had moved to Zoom or, uh, you know, working from home, uh, people were getting back to work even quicker, because yeah you know, getting on a laptop to do your work is, is, is really not that demanding. And most patients are able to accommodate that pretty easily. Exactly. I've noticed I think sometimes, I think sometimes go back yeah, really quickly. Sure. I, I was going to say, I think sometimes the challenge is that you're feeling great and you want to go do more things that you really should. Mm -hmm. <laughs> do you, do you have that, that example? You know, that's... We've had a few, but we've never really had anyone sort of regret when they go back to work. Yeah, but we've had yeah. a few people who say, oh, you know, um, I went back and I maybe I overdid it the first week yeah. or two, but it worked out in the end and I was yeah. able to cope. It's kind of like train, you know, learning to ride a bike again or anything like that. Like you may overdo it the first session or the first day or two, but then you get used to it. Yeah, yeah. So we're almost out of time and I do want to talk about long-term post-operative follow-up, but I think we should have that to be a separate uh, show and podcast. So I do want to ask a question. There's a big elephant in the room that we haven't discussed yet, and that's what about pain management after surgery? Yeah, so yeah. I haven't, I, what I tell patients is that um, uh, most, the vast majority of patients do well with just Tylenol. Um, we try to avoid Advil because it's a blood thinner. Um, and we give patients a prescription for a narcotic when they're discharged from the hospital. Um, but I monitor, you know, we, these days, everything gets reported and documented for those prescriptions. And, you know, while they certainly are more than welcome to use something stronger than Tylenol, um, I think with the increasing attention to um, exercising care and caution and good judgment around opioids, it almost feels like patients themselves have become very informed about titrating medication to their pain and not reflexively filling a prescription or opening the bottle just because you were told you might need, you know, the narcotic. So I've been very I, pleased. I think that's true. Very, yeah, I agree. I think and, people, uh, I mean, the people that we've talked to, are, you know, lots of discussions in patient forums and about uh, uh, opioids and pain meds and, People are very careful with them. And I, and I tell in patients general. that the, um, you know, in some cases being treating your pain specifically to what might be causing it can help and be simpler than, than popping a pill. So, you know, and we can facilitate this and work with them, but sometimes the pain can mean that you're, that you've got some debris in your nose. And so we give them a nasal saline rinse or ocean spray, and that can actually help them more be more comfortable or an over-the-counter decongestant like a Sudafed. And those things can actually 
help with pain. And, and those are very simple solutions that don't involve the types of medications that can make you sleepy or knock you out. That's true. You know, when I, my experience with saline solution was fantastic. I mean, it was, I used it, but I had never used it before. And it was, fun, it was great how much it helped uh, it, during, I, after the operation. And those, those solutions, interestingly, the saline solutions, and they're being marketed now as like, it's like the next wave of like, you know, years ago, the way we had melatonin and they're yeah. just saying this is like, um, the, this is a hygiene solution that will make you breathe more comfortably. It'll fix your sleep apnea. I was driving in the car and heard, you know, the solutions that, that we're giving our patients are being marketed for everyone. So I think they are very helpful. Yeah. Yeah. Well, once again, this has been a tremendous discussion with you, Manish. Thank you so much for your time and enlightening us about your approach and thoughts regarding the different phases of uh, pituitary surgery. I, I think that uh, those in the audience listening can consider themselves fortunate to have had the opportunity to hear this. Because uh, no physician is going to spend an hour talking about these things with a patient. So we've created now a, a vehicle here for people to learn and to re-listen and to cover cover this information. I'm sure that I'll refer a number of our patients to this podcast in the future so they can hear the long version of the things that we really have very little time to discuss in the uh, time of the office visit. So thank you so much for creating this. Yeah, thank you so much for taking the time. It's really wonderful. I I really appreciate it. I enjoyed it a lot. And we do. All right. And thanks, everyone, for listening. Uh, As a reminder, this will be uh, stored as a podcast at Pituitary World News as well. So you can uh, listen to it as often as you'd like. Send it to a friend, family members, your physician uh, or whatever. But uh, help get the word out there about what to expect with uh, the sense that you're going to have pituitary surgery. And uh, we'll see you in a few weeks for another show. Yeah, share it with the world. And it's on the on-demand section of Pituitary World News. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. You have been listening to Live Talk, an exclusive production from Pituitary World News. Pituitary World News is a nonprofit organization supported by a variety of organizations, foundations, and from people like you. We encourage you to participate by joining us to spread the word about pituitary disease. And if you'd like to donate, please go to pituitaryworldnews.org and click on the Donate button. Thank you, and thank you for listening.